Dr Lindy Lee is one of Australia's most influential and respected contemporary artists and cultural role models. Her acclaimed installations, sculptures, drawings, paintings, prints and public art are displayed all around Australia and the world. And in all those different forms, she's explored big themes of identity and belonging, informed by the experience of growing up in a Chinese family in Brisbane during the White Australia policy. Lindy Lee became an Officer of the Order of Australia in this year's Australia Day Honours for services to contemporary visual arts. And I'm very pleased to say that she joins us on The Year That Made Me Now. Welcome, Lindy. Morning, Julian. It's great to be speaking with you. Lindy, could you tell us how it was that you came to be born in Brisbane in 1954? Um, you have to ask my parents that. Um, <laughs> okay. No, okay. So it's a long story. I mean, how much time have we got? But my parents were actually from China. My dad came to Australia in 1946. Um, this is right at the end of Japanese occupation of World War II. And because of white Australia policy, he had to leave my mum and my two brothers back in China until he could find a way to bring them to Australia because government policy wouldn't allow wives and children to come. Mm. So after about oh, seven years or so, dad found a way to bring mum and my two brothers to Australia. And somehow we ended up in Brisbane where, where Dad uh, worked at a furniture factory at, and a Chinese restaurant, as you do if you're a Chinese immigrant family. Yeah, so you're growing up at a time where the White Australia policy is still in full force. It didn't start to be dismantled until the Holt government in 1966. What was it like growing up in, in Brisbane in the 50s, 60s, 70s as a Chinese girl? Look, it was, you know, it, it's, a, it's a strange thing. It was fine, but it wasn't fine. Of course, you know, you know, we had lots of friends and stuff, but it's also there's the, the you know, the insidiousness of such a policy because it's because it's such a it, it's a government policy. It's at, at such a high level that it mm. just it, it it becomes toxic and you begin it it sort of filters through to everyday encounters where people would you know would just feel it was completely natural to say things like. Why aren't you going out with your own kind? And, you know, mm. th those sorts of very insidious things that you internalise so that you begin to believe there's something deeply wrong with you just because of the colour of your skin. So I think that was the experience of a lot of Chinese. And let's face it, the White Australia policy was absolutely directed against the Chinese. You knew from a very early age that you wanted to be an artist, but I understand you also spent a lot of your early life trying not to be an artist. Could you tell us about both sides of that? <laughs> well, it's one thing to, you know, like I, I, I have this really vivid memory of me lying on my tummy um, in our house at Kangaroo Point. It was an old Queenslander house and the sun was, you know, streaming through onto the floor and I could watch the dust motes, you know, dancing in, in the light and I just and I was drawing at the time and my deepest wish was was to to be able to draw those dust motes you know to draw that that magic but you know it's a very long and windy road from that kind of delight and wonder and that wish to create or recreate something to becoming an artist so you know there was mm. a lot of self-doubt I had to go through everybody has to go through that I think but the likes of a, a Chinese girl growing up in Queensland becoming an artist of any influence at all, it was completely unthinkable. So it just never occurred to me that I could be an artist. But I, I just so I spent a lot of my years from high school, like the first ten years after high school, avoiding it. I, you know, I became a, a graphic designer, I could make a, a high school teacher, you know, art teacher. I studied art history. I did everything adjacent 
to being an artist except being an artist. <laughs> As you've told us, you, your parents had obviously struggled to construct the life that you ended up having in, in Brisbane. How did they feel about the idea of you becoming an artist? Well, I think that the reality was that I was a girl and so it didn't really matter what I wanted to do because because in a way they kind of expected that I would just get married and have children. Mm. So mm. Th- th- I, I in fact remember not exactly lying but I just said, yeah, I'm going to university but I didn't tell them what I was going to do because eventually I, you know, it's a long story but it, eventually I did become an art student but I just simply told them that I was going to university and that seemed to satisfy them. So, Lindy, we're in the 1970s now, and it's in the 1970s that you've chosen the year that made you. What year have you chosen and why? Okay, so the year is kind of 1977. It's 76, 77. We'll call it 77. So, at that stage, I'd been a high school teacher for a few years, uh, an art teacher. Fortunately, when I was in teacher's training college, I made a couple of friends, uh, and we're still friends, and we... This is Brisbane in the 1970s. So we've got Joe Bielke Peterson. There is no culture to speak of. And so the four of us, these friends, we made a pact that we would leave Australia and study elsewhere because surely there had to be more to life than 70s. And so we all left um, after a few years of teaching. And that for me, that was in 19. It was actually on Christmas Day on 19, in 1976 that I left for Canada. And I don't know why, I just went to Canada. I've got nothing against Canada, but it was just like going from Australia to Australia. And I just sort of realised, <laughs> what was I doing? I wanted a really deeply changing, you know, life-changing experience. And Canada was not going to provide that because it was too familiar. And so at that point, I really took on that question of whether I really wanted to become an artist or not. And I had a boyfriend at that point and we decided to go to Italy and it was at that point, I sort of arrived in Italy and and I just saw this incredible work. I mean, you know, I, my mind was blown away by the quality of, you know, we're, we're talking about the Renaissance, we're talking about... Yeah, they've got a bit of art there, yeah. There, 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 was a bit of, there was a bit to look at. There was a bit different <laughs> yeah. from Australia. It was quite nice and it was transforming. And anyway, in that time, I decided that I wasn't going to go back to Canada. I actually was in the Uffizi Museum and I was drawn to this painting and it was a really violent painting of a, of a woman beheading uh, this man. And when I looked at it and it, I realised that it was um, the story of Judith slaying Holhofenes, but it was painted by a woman called Artemisia Gentileschi. And when I realised it was a woman who'd painted it, some really important seed dropped and I realised that, yes, actually women could be artists. It's just like it sounds bizarre these days to, to have that that realisation. But just seeing her work just allowed me to imagine and to dream that maybe I could do this. And mm. very soon after, I applied to Chelsea School of Art in London and got accepted. And that's how it all began. When you became an art student... Did that confirm everything that you'd always felt in terms of that strong desire to become an artist? Listen, I think I I really had to struggle a lot with what the content of my work would be because, Mm. you know, there is that point where, you know, you want this thing desperately, you want to be an artist and then eventually, you know, when you finally get the courage and you've got the studio and you've got that blank canvas and then all of a sudden is, what the hell do I make the work about? 
because it's not just being an artist isn't just being, you know, just being able to paint um, scenes or portraits or anything like that. Being an artist is really about a very deep inquiry about your your life and your relationship with the world, and that inquiry then becomes something in a way public for other people to consider because it reflects their lives as well. So being an artist is really about these very deep existential questions about one's existence. And the follow for my work was, of course, not belonging, not feeling as if I could belong to this country that I was born in. And so that was a very uh, long and painful journey to realise that, in fact, I not only belong, um, but this story of not belonging and this discomfort is actually uh, a very common story in Australia. So you're admitted into art school in London in 1978. Had you still been creating art all the way along before then? Yeah, look, I, it's not that I'd ever stopped. So, it, it, you know, I was always drawing. And, in fact, I spent a lot of my time in Italy uh, just drawing. And so the, the, that sort of personal um, need to express myself was always there. But, you know, again, it's it's a big step up from you know mm. that you know and sort of just doing just doing what they they weren't exactly doodles but I, I really didn't understand you know you can have talent but you actually have to have something that drives that talent and so I had to find a way of accessing that deep deep that deeper question inside of me which I didn't even know existed and I think that's what happened at art school because you're asked to to really connect with with something in the world so when I I'll do it this different way. So when I was teaching and and students would become stuck, as you do, I would just ask them to go to that thing or that place that they absolutely really loved with all of their heart and try and find through that connection a way to do something. And that was actually what art school provided me. It was just the space to really connect with those deeper things inside of me and to have the time to tease out these questions and then by the time I got to Australia, I was actually ready and I had to come back to Australia, by the way, after being in London for three years in order to actually face the issues, the issues of not belonging. Uh, I really had to come back to Australia to, to deal with that. And I'm grateful Is that why for you that. came back? Uh, I came back because I had no money left. That was <laughs> one thing. <laughs> because London in the 70s, well, in London anyway, is just really expensive and fees for art students or just students, overseas students, were just immense. And anyway, I couldn't afford it. But it was it was good, actually, because I, I was ripe to come back to Australia to actually address those questions of belonging or not belonging. And they had to mm. be addressed in the country where I felt it most deeply. Because I could have been happily, uh, you know, a, a punkhead, um, you know, back in London in those days, you know, and just lived that kind of life. Well, not really, but if you knew me, but. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so Lindy, you've described it how in a way you're now ready and trained to be an artist and to explore these themes of belonging and not belonging. What sort of an art scene did you find when you came back to Australia? Was the art scene ready for the themes that you were ready to explore? It was really exciting actually coming back. Um, it was the 80s by the time I got back and it was a really fruitful period in Sydney. So I was born in Brisbane and I decided not to go back to Brisbane to live, but in Sydney. So things like ARIES, you know, artist-run initiatives, these spaces, these were erupting. And as an art student, because I, um, you know, and as a young emerging artist, 
it was fantastic because, you know, I found myself involved in a number of collectives and groups and we would publish magazines. You know, we'd put a hundred bucks in together, you know, like five of us and produce this magazine and it would run for two years. But that was really exciting. It was a really important proving ground for us, I think. And, you know, and we'd have collective um, exhibitions. Darling Harbour, for instance, at that time was a derelict site. And so I remember that a bunch of us, I think we were called Curb Your Dog Collective anyway. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, we would we would we would go into Darling Harbour over particular weekends and just do these hit and run pop up shows. So it was it was really exciting actually in the eighties in, in Sydney to do that sort of thing. And you know, there were lots of um, in Newtown, for instance, there were lots of derelict warehouses. And, you know, they got squatted in and they became artist studios. So that was Sydney in the 80s. And, Lindy, it's very hard to ask a visual artist on the radio to describe their work, but I wonder if you could give us a bit of a flavour of how some of those themes of belonging or not belonging showed up in the works you created as an artist in Australia in the 80s and beyond. Oh, that's such a simple question. Gosh. Um, okay. <laughs> 30 seconds or less. All right. <laughs> 30 seconds. Yeah, okay. Well, look, I, I'll start off like in the late 70s and early 80s, I was actually doing a lot of copying of European masterpieces. That was to do with uh, actually having lived in Europe for a while, but also me trying to find some sense of belonging. So me copying these great masters was trying to find mm. what fit me and didn't fit me and this face. And then the work changes because I have a few epiphanies about that along the way. And I, I feel, I, you know, there's this, uh, I think it's Jung, Jung who said, everything repressed returns as fate. And I found that the repressed part of my Chineseness, you know, just being Chinese, because I actually felt a great deal of shame about that, that was just rearing its head. And I realized that I had to address that and address the rather painful questions of the story of my family's migration migration and the, the the racism and all that sort of stuff that's, that was experienced in Australia. And then through um, being interested in um, ancient Chinese philosophies like Zen and um, Taoism, I actually found a practice, you know, in Zen, um, the the one thing that the one vow is, is uh, in every single moment, uh, you belong and you are, you, you are open and you are, you, you are curious about the world. And so make every moment of your life a, a piece of curiosity about the, about the world and what you are in it. And somehow that was liberating for me. And then that starts to change my the materials that I start to work with. And that's an even more exciting story. And that those materials become things like stainless steel and bronze. And I become these. I make these rather large sculptures, which um, which I like to say are kind of these solid forms, these um, massive six to ten metre forms that seem solid but also because of the massive number of perforations that they have in these sculptures almost dissolve into stardust. So there's this constant motion of, of form dissolving into stardust and somehow yeah. that relates to identifying with life and cosmos, the coming and going of, our, of each existence. You mentioned that move to different media and I gather that that uh, happened after you met a couple of brothers who'd set up uh, a huge foundry outside Brisbane. Could you tell us about that because it's obviously led to a lot of those really iconic works that you've created in recent years. 
I had the wonderful um, opportunity. I met Dan and Matt Tobin, who who are twin brothers, um, and they started this little foundry uh, called Urban Art Projects UAP in Brisbane. And they've flourished, and they've they've got foundries in Brisbane, Shanghai, and uh, New York now. And so what happened was I, I just simply met Dan at a party once and he just invited me to come and play at UAP. You know, I'd heard about them, but I'd, I'd, I'd literally thought that they'd bought, you know, something that was the size of a double car garage. And, you know, so I went up there and it was the size of two aircraft hangars and they were making a work for the Middle East, which involved three square kilometres of sheet metal. So... <laughs> So I walk in and I think I'm in the wrong place because all I want to do is, you know, draw, draw a few holes and, and <laughs> you know, play, you know, burn a bit of metal and stuff. But they welcome me and they literally throw up, open the, the, the foundry to me and just they just say, look, whatever you want to experiment with, we'll help you. And they did. And, and, and anyway, my little experiments have now become these massive sculptures because of their generosity. Um, and their just willingness to allow me to just play in, with anything in the factory that I, I wanted to. And I've been able to do that in Brisbane, in Shanghai, and now in New York. And it's pretty exciting, I have to say. It's, it sounds like a, a lot of fun, although dangerous fun, I suppose, when you're working in a, a foundry. What does the ability to create art on that massive scale do for you as an artist, Lindy? It's incredibly liberating. Because just for this very simple thing, in order to make these huge sculptures, I have to collaborate. I can't possibly do this by myself. And so what what happens is that I can have an idea. I have no idea, you know, I have no technical capacity to engineer these things or even Mm. fabricate these things. So me as the artist, I I come with an idea, I, I do these drawings and then all of a sudden, I'm working with engineers, I'm working with metallurgists, I'm working with all sorts of people who bring their knowledge, you know, to the table. And then all of a sudden, this simple idea or this just question that I might have flourishes and, you know, takes on this new energy and new life. And, you know, and then we have the excitement of actually bringing it into the world. So that can't happen, you know, because I, I remember just having these ideas for maybe 10, 15 years before I met Dan and Matt and just thinking, how am I ever going to be able to do this? Because they were just growing inside of me, but I just didn't have any way of actually materialising them. But UAP have allowed me to do that because they have the infrastructure to do it. And it's also the fact that you walk through the foundry and you see them pouring and casting or doing um, incredible patinas and on other people's work. And in every every time I see something, it's gonna it it generates another idea for me. it's It's amazing. It's been fantastic speaking with you for the year that made me, Lindy. Uh, we always ask our guests at the end of the year that made me to choose a piece of music. Before you give us your selection, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you listen to music when you're creating your art, because it's a little bit unusual. (laughs) Yeah, I probably, thank God we've got uh, headphones these days. Um, (laughs) So what happens with me, I just usually on a body of work, and that body of work can be, take up, you know, three to six months to make. There's usually one song or one piece of music that I listen to obsessively 
through that whole period. And it would drive everybody else in the studio nuts um, because I literally – and it, you know, so it, for instance, I was doing a, a series of paintings about the, the Tang dynasty, for heaven's sake. It was a commission for something. And I was listening to Roy Orbison singing She's a Mystery to Me. So that as was, you do. was playing com- – yeah, as you do. Like what, <laughs> what Roy has to do with Tang Dynasty, nothing. But it was the beat and the rhythm and it, it was just that that's what I have to find and the beat and the rhythm so that I can – as soon as I listen to it, I'm back in the place where I need to be for that work to to appear somehow. It just keeps – it gives me that thread and that constant thread. Anyway, it sounds so, like it might run the risk of ruining that song for some of your studio mates and the like. But what oh, what does it do for the, for your relationship with that particular song? Do you is it sort of indelibly linked then to that artwork in your mind? Yeah, they're sort of it's the soundtrack of mm. there is a soundtrack to my creative life, and it probably consists of about six songs because I just play them over and over and over again. <laughs> well, Lindy, is the song that we're going to hear at the end of the year that made me one of those uh, pieces from the, the soundtrack of your life, or have you gone with something else? No, I've gone with some um, um, a perennial favourite, okay, and it's Luke Howard's Over Sky. And there's a sort of slightly melancholic tone to it, but it, but it's kind of restful as well. So it's, it's an easy piece of music to listen to, and it always... Um, brings me into that creative place that I need to be in when I'm working. Sounds like a very good frame of mind for anyone to be in. So let's have a listen right now. Uh, Dr. Lindy Lee, Officer of the Order of Australia, congratulations and thank you for joining us on The Year That Made Me. Pleasure, Julian. ABC RN Stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.